Tonight we're calling this Live As Big As You Talk. And Ezra has apparently said some big words. And in this chapter, he describes how he has to live up to them. Most of us are aware of how we can produce good or bad through the things that we say. But this is a chapter where we see that Ezra spoke so much good about his God, but it came to create a very interesting situation for him that could have been difficult. So we are going to be over in Ezra chapter 8, looking at the entire chapter. Last week we were looking at how easy it is to see the hand of God on the things that we do when everything is going well. But we know we have developed our faith, our walk in patience and hope, when we can see the hand of God on on our work, even when things aren't going so well or don't seem to be progressing. So we looked at some of those things last week, looked at some examples. Let's uh, start off here in Ezra 8 and verse 1. These are the heads of their father's houses, and this is the genealogy of those who went up with me from Babylon in the reign of King Artaxerxes, of the sons of Phineas, Gershom, of the sons of Ithamar, Daniel, of the sons of David, Hattush, of the sons of Shechaniah, of the sons of Parash, Zechariah, and registered with him were 150 males, of the sons of Pahath, Moab, Elehonoi, and the son of Zerahai, uh, and with him 200 males, the sons of Shechaniah, Ben-Jahaziel, and with him 300 males, and the sons of Adin, Ebed, the son of Jonathan, and with him 50 males, the sons of Elam, Jeshiah, the son of Athaliah, and with him 70 males, of the sons of Shephatiah, Zebediah, the son of Michael, and with him 80 males, and of the sons of Joab, Obadiah, the son of Jehiel, and with him 218 males, of the sons of Shalemoth, ben Josephia, and with him 160 males, of the sons of Babai, Zechariah, the son of Babai, and with him 28 males, of the sons of Asgad, Jahanan, and the son of Hakatan, and with him 110 males, of the last sons of Adonikam, whose names are these, Elephelet, Jael, Shemaiah, and with him sixty males, and also the sons of Bigvi, Uthai, Zabud, and with them seventy males. Now, people who sit down and do this, I have absolutely no reason to challenge them at all. But some people have sat down and added all these numbers up, and they come up with one thousand four hundred and ninety-six men in the group. Now, considering that their wives and their children are not mentioned, at least not uh, the children that are the young ones. We would have a total group in here somewhere probably between six and seven thousand, which is smaller than the first group who went. But nevertheless, it's a, it's a good sized group. And, oh, I did forget to tell Daryl beforehand, I do have a, two pictures on that disk drive that I put, but I couldn't move it over to the computer. So if you want to get them, grab them, you can. If not, don't worry about it. We can, um, it's not really all that, that critical on things. So these are the people that had gone on up. 
that had come along. And then we're going to find something interesting about the group here as we get to verse 15. Now I gathered them by the river that flows to Ahava, and we camped there three days. And I looked among the people and the priests and found none of the sons of Levi there. So we've got 1,496 men in the group. And out of that, no one from the tribe of Levi. That would seem to include some priests are not not there as well. So we have no priests, no Levi. Maybe some of the temple servants came along. Don't know about that, but when they go and recruit some, we see that some of the temple servants are, are brought along. So how do you have people that are servants? This, this is their call in life. Levites, they're called to be servants of the temple. Sons of Aaron are called to be priests of the temple. How do you have people that are called to be in the temple, serving the temple, not making the trip to go to the temple? That seems to be kind of odd, that if you have people that this is what their call is in life, and they know that call because they were born to the house of Levi, that when the call goes out, some 60 years after the temple was made, some 80 years after the the first group had gone. They may not have, uh, they probably were young enough, they didn't have a choice to go in the first group, but they have a choice now, and none of them apparently decided to go. And Ezra's not okay with this. So in verse 17, And I gave them a command for Ido, the chief man at the place, Casaphia, and I told them what they should say to Ido and his brethren, the Nathanim, and at the place of Casaphia, that they should bring us servants for the house of our God. Then by the good hand of our God upon us, they brought us a man of understanding, of the sons of Mali, the son of Levi, the son of Israel, namely Sherebiah with his sons and brothers, 18 men. So they brought them a man of understanding, it says. Now, unfortunately, this is not written in Greek. I know I can go get a Greek translation of this, but it's not going to be the same thing as having the original. It's written in Hebrew. But I did find out that the Hebrew has a couple of different words for understanding. And in this passage, we see two of them. But it says they had found, they got some of the uh, leaders that were there. And it's, uh, this is, uh, they list the leaders. But among the leaders, it says they also, in verse 16, also for Jorod, and El Nathan, men of understanding. That word there for men of understanding is different from the word understanding in 18. And so I did some looking up on these things to check these out to see what's going on. What about these two different words? Well, vines is mostly a Greek work, but they do cover some Hebrew words. So I went in there and checked it out and looked it up to see what was come of that and they do not cover these particular words but they cover ones very similar to it so uh, we may not have the, the noun form or the uh, but we have the verb form but it's just uh, slightly different numbers like that I wrote the number in there for you so that you could see it that way this would be the first word understanding we have is the uh, H or for Hebrew 995 so that's towards the beginning of the alphabet and it means to discern, distinguish, or understand. It is used, this is the word that is used when Pharaoh is looking for a man of understanding to run the country, to get ready for the famine that was coming. And this, of course, Joseph is, is uh, selected. 
Joseph says, you need to go out there and find a man of understanding. And Pharaoh says, well, who is a better man of understanding than you? That same word there is used to describe a man who would be understanding in a multitude of things. So the best I could do, looking at this and trying to find from the little bit of of things that I could do and going through Scripture and looking at, at other things, it seems that this first word is used of people who have an uh, understanding that is very broad and the actual uh, definition of this from vines is to understand, to be able, to deal wisely, to consider, to pay attention, uh, regard, to regard, to notice, to discern, to perceive, and to inquire. So when it describes this particular man, it is saying he is a man of understanding. He is uh, these two men, these these two men here at the end. The others in the list were the leaders. These are the men of understanding they brought, because besides they may not be leaders in there, but they are able to look at a situation, determine what is need, needed, determine how we can solve this problem. Because the problem is we have to get more Levites. We have to get more people from the tribe of Levi. That may also include more priests. We need to get some more people over there to work on the temple, because right now we don't have any. So this is the problem. So they bring two men in of understanding along with the leaders. So we got the leaders. They can lead the people. But we also got people who can look at how can we solve this problem. And through their combined work, they're able to go out there and to find some. It said in verse 18, Then by the good hand of our God upon us, they brought us a man of understanding of the sons of Mahli, the son of Levi, the son of Israel, namely Sherebiah, with his sons and brothers, 18 men. So here in this this list of people that is uh, that is sought for, that is that is brought up, they have in there one man who is understanding, but the word understanding is different. In this particular word, this word is used to in First Samuel twenty five to describe Abigail, the wife, who of course of Nabal, who was a worthless man, but she was. You, this word is used to describe her in First Chronicles twenty two twelve. It reads this way. And actually uses both of these words. Only may the Lord give you wisdom and understanding and give you charge concerning Israel that you may keep the law of the Lord your God. So the first one, wisdom, is the one that we have here used, the one that we have used first. This second word, understanding, is used differently. So that the understanding of the Hebrew mind is that we have both things going in play here. There is wisdom and there is understanding. There is wisdom and there is understanding. So the the guy they brought in, the two guys they brought in to help solve the problem have more of a broad spectrum type of a wisdom and able to use that wisdom to handle any situation that comes up. Whereas the other one is looking more at a specific situation. That's the best I was able to get. To get. Again, if it would have been in Greek, I have a lot more access to things that would help us for that. But this is not real critical to the whole meaning of of what's going on here. So verse 19 again, And Hashabiah, with him Jeshiah, the sons of Merari, his brothers and their sons, twenty men, also of the Nethinim, whom David and the leaders had appointed for the service of the Levites, two hundred and twenty Nethinim, all of them were designated by name. So we add all these people to the group already, and now we've got some temple servants to go along with us, so that makes them a little little happier. So now we've got some people who will go along, who will be servants, and will serve. I don't know what the rest of them are going to do. They're servants, but they're not servants. 
It's, uh, it's kind of like in this day and age, we can have Christians who aren't being Christ-like. If you're going to be a Christian, the idea is to be like Christ. If we're called believers, then we're supposed to have things that we believe. And uh, not always are we doing the things that we are called by. But let's go on here in verse 21. Then I proclaimed to fast there at the river of Ahava, that we might humble ourselves before our God to seek from him the right way for us and our little ones and all our possessions. So they wanted to seek the way from God. God, what are we supposed to do? How are we supposed to go out and do this thing? We understand that on the first day is when he says, the first day of the first month is when they left. But they don't leave this particular place until the twelfth day. So they take time to collect everybody at this particular location. They spent three days uh, praying and fasting. They also spent some days to go out there and to recruit some people. This is all done by the twelfth day. On the twelfth day of the first month, they embark upon leaving the Babylonian area and they head on out. And he calls for a fast. Now, a lot of people will do this. They'll call for a fast in such a way that it seems like we expect that our fast should move God. Fasting does not move God. If God is ready to move, God's ready to move. And it is faith that moves God, not fasts. But their idea is here they want to hear from God. If you want to hear from God, fasting is not going to get God to speak louder. But it can quiet your flesh. It can help you battle that that flesh part. It can help uh, get you more tuned into your spirit. When you have those things going on, then when God speaks... You are more able to hear him. So it will not move God to speak, but it can move us to a better place to hear him. And we certainly need to be in a good place to hear him. So uh, I don't fault them at all for, for fasting here. There are people, though, they'll pull a fast out and they expect, well, if we fast, we need a healing in this matter. This person's dying. That's all fast. That's not going to do anything. You use the name of Jesus. You use the things that Jesus gave you. Why are you fasting for something that God has already given you? So don't um, don't insult God by by saying, "Well, if we fast, then we'll move God." Uh, know your God. Don't do those kind of things. But fasting can certainly get them ready to hear and be in a better place to receive what He is trying to say to them. Verse twenty-two. We get to the meat here of this thing. So they're fasting and praying before they leave out because they want to hear from God. They want to seek from Him the right way for us and our little ones and all our possessions. Uh, did you get those maps up? No, all right, good. Then we'll go ahead and put them up. I apologize for not getting that ready for you earlier. I put up a timeline here first. In the timeline, this is uh, just the timeline of Ezra. So you can see how all these things are coming about. This is when Nebuchadnezzar had taken Babylon. This is when the decree from Cyrus goes out to build the temple. And that would be 538. About 535 is when temple construction begins. Remember on B.C., so counting down is moving forward. So 535, the construction begins. In 521, Darius becomes king of of Persia. Haggai and Zechariah, they begin their prophetic ministry around 520. Now, it depends on whose map you look at for all this stuff. Some of the dates may vary. Uh, We're just looking at this one right now. It might be 518, it might be 521, but it's right around this particular area. So we looked at the words of Haggai and the things that he had to say. So around 520 is when they came out. And by 515, the temple is completed. So the temple is done. Artaxerxes becomes kings of Persia in 464. And Ezra returns to Jerusalem, or he goes to Jerusalem at about 458. 
Nehemiah will also go to Jerusalem, but not until about 444. So we've got about uh, 14 years before that will happen. But right now, this is where we're at, 458, around here. This is where Ezra is going. Back here is where the temple was completed, 515, 458. This is when he is leaving. And they're going, of course, to beautify the temple and make it better yet. Go on to the next slide. We have two here for you. I do not know how they put these together. I looked for everything that I could possibly look that they would describe the route. I couldn't seem to find the things that these folks were able to grab hold of. But Zerubbabel, the first group that went, is said to have gone along the green path, which would have taken them further north and then back down over this way. If you're wondering why, what is in here that everybody seems to try to avoid? Why are they going so far up to come back down again? Uh, it is not mountains. There is desert. It seems that they don't want to cross the desert because of the taxing that that will do on their supplies and so forth. So this lower route, it still seems like it skirts the area of the desert. But I don't know why these guys didn't take it and these guys did. Some maps will actually show you that these that this group with Ezra took the same path. I can't tell you which, but what I can tell you is these are the probable paths that were there. Uh... This is the one, the first one, Zerubbabel, was, as you can see, it's longer. This is the one where they had taken, so they left. This is the area where they gathered. They brought everybody together over in this area, and then they made the, the trip to, to go. So I wanted to show that to you last week, and I forgot to uh, copy them and bring them over. So I wanted to make sure we got them for you this time. Let's go on to verse 22. So they want to find out what's the right way. It is possible that the Lord told them to go in a southern direction. Take the southern route instead of the same route that Zerubbabel took. Uh, I just don't know because I don't see anything that really describes too much in that area. But here's why they were really motivated to seek after the Lord on the way in which to go. And that's verse 22. For I was ashamed to request of the king an escort of soldiers and horsemen to help us against the enemy on the road because we had spoken to the king saying the hand of our God is upon all those for good who seek him, but his power and his wealth are against all those who forsake him. So we fasted and entreated our God for this, and he answered our prayer. What he's saying here is, we had talked to King Artaxerxes, and we told him how great our God was. We told him how strong he was. We told him of all the things that he did in the wilderness. We told him of all the things he did to uh, get us out of Egypt. We told him how he fed us from heaven. We told him about how he parted the sea. We told him all these things about how great our God is and that the hand of our God is upon us. And then we have to go to him and say, hey, we need some soldiers to guard us so we can get there and do what God told us to do. <laughs> now, Esther is pretty smart to put this together before going to the king and saying, hey, king, can you give us some guards? The reason they might think to do this is because you've got six, seven thousand people that are making the trip. That's going to attract some attention. You can't just sneak them on through. They are carrying a whole lot of gold and silver. They're carrying some gold and silver articles that probably were found from the temple before. Then King Artaxerxes made some gold and silver articles to send along because he wants to appease this God. And then they have all the finances to pay for all the sacrifices and all the things to beautify the temple. So they're going with a lot of stuff. And that would make them a target. So... Going on that, they, they have no soldiers. They have no people that are, that are armed. Maybe they got a few swords around, but 
They're not really going with any arm armament. They are heading out and they're thinking while they're going, we've got all this gold. We are a prime target. What is going to stop people from coming and killing us and taking all of our stuff? But we can't really go to the king. That's I don't think a lot of Christians think things through. They don't always think about living the way they're talking. We sometimes talk a great game of faith, but then we don't live it. It's easy to talk about. I remember something that Brother Tony Cook, when he came out here one time, uh, I don't know if he said it in the meeting or if it was in one of our conversations we had afterwards, but he did say, it is very, it is, uh, how did he put it? It is easy to teach a faith life. It is harder to pastor it. He said, it's really easy for us teachers to go around and teach people how to live the life of faith, but it's harder to pastor it because there you got to be in there in the trenches when people are going through some stuff. And I thought that was a very profound statement. I've remembered it. I don't even know how many years ago he said it. But uh, that was that was very profound for me. But here, he says, look, we've said the hand of our God is upon us or upon all those for, not just us, not just that God likes us, the hand of God is upon all those for good who seek Him. But His power and His wrath are against all those who forsake Him. So if we're saying our God is all-powerful, our God has been able to part Red Seas, our God has been able to defeat armies, our God has been able to bring water out of rock, our God has been able to rain bread from heaven. But King, can you help us out and give us some soldiers so that we can get there safely? He saw that as a problem. And he says, uh, I'm not going to do that. <laughs> and so they spend this time fasting and praying. And I think Ezra is going to God and he's saying, God, I'm not going to insult you. I know these things are true about you. I know what you are able to do. So I'm asking you, you show us the way. You show us how to go. You show us what we are to do. And we will follow what you tell us to do because I know that you are able to get us from here to there better than a king's escort. Now, it's one thing to talk that. It's one thing to say that. It's a whole other thing to step out and to make the trip and to walk away from the protection you had over there in Babylon. You are now going out into the wilderness area. You have no protection What you say today about your God, your beliefs, your calling, and so forth, will be remembered. They'll be remembered by some of the unsaved people that are listening to you. Some of them unsaved people are hearing how you're talking about your God. And then when they see you in a situation, and they see panic, they see fear, they see worry, they see anxiety, they begin to wonder, hmm... I thought they were Christians. I thought they said their God was over all this. I thought they're going to remember. If you speak words that you haven't spent the time to understand, a similar day will arrive in your life. You will come upon a day in your life where you will be in the same place Ezra is. Hey, I've said all these things about my God. Now I've got to walk it out. So they want a direction as to how they're supposed to make the trip. I want you to notice something about Ezra. Ezra is more focused on people seeing the glory of God than on his own safety. He is more concerned. He is more focused 
about people seeing the glory of God in what they are doing than he is about his own safety. He would rather put himself in a situation where he could potentially die and God not get glory. Ooh, that is something else. That is how sold out this man is to these things. Now, just a little added note. Nehemiah, in his day, would see this same matter differently. He accepted a military escort as part of God's blessing. <laughs> now, I'm not faulting Nehemiah for it. I'm just, maybe it was offered, he didn't ask for it, maybe it was just offered to him. But um, he saw that as a blessing of God. Ezra is saying, you know what, I can't go and ask for that. Because then the king is going to wonder, do you really believe that God is the way that you say He is? Verse 24. I mean, if you're going to be travelers, you've got to be traveling. So now we get to the traveling part. And we see some interesting things here. And I separated 12 of the leaders of the priest, Sherebiah, Hashabiah, and 10 of their brethren with them, and weighed out to them the silver, the gold, and the articles, the offering for the house of our God, which the king and his counselors and his princes and all Israel who were present, had offered. And I weighed into their hands 650 talents of silver, silver articles weighing 100 talents, 100 talents of gold, 20 gold basins worth a thousand uh, drachmas, and two vessels of fine polished bronze, precious as gold. And I said to them, You are holy to the Lord. The articles are holy also. And the silver... And the gold are a free will offering to the Lord, God of your fathers. Watch and keep them until you weigh them before the leaders of the priests and the Levites and the heads of the fathers, houses of Israel and Jerusalem, in the chambers of the house of the Lord. So the priests and Levites received the silver and the gold and the articles by weight to bring them to Jerusalem to the house of our God. Now, what he's doing here is he's taking everything of value and he's dividing it up among the 12 leaders or among 12 leaders so that each leader is looking over one-twelfth of all the stuff. It's easier for one leader to look at one-twelfth of the stuff than it is for all of them to try and watch all of the stuff. So they waited out. You've got this portion. You've got this portion. All you got to do is keep an eye on your portion. Watch over it. So now we're ready to go. Then we departed from the river of Ahava on the twelfth day of the first month. So again, we went from the first day when he listed that the whole thing started to the twelfth day here now to go to Jerusalem. Now look at this wording. This wording here is really interesting. And the hand of our God was upon us and he delivered us from the hand of the enemy and from an bush along the road. Hmm. I pondered on that little statement there for a little while. This word delivered here, I looked it up. Of course, I love the Greek words for delivered. But again, we have to look at the Hebrew ones. This word delivered means to snatch away. Whether in a good or a bad sense. Defend, deliver, escape, pluck. Preserve, recover, rescue, rid, save, spoil, strip, or take out. 
That is the meanings of this particular Hebrew word. He said they were delivered from the hand of the enemy and from ambush along the road. God delivered them. I don't know about you, but there seems to be a story there. I think we, I think we got gypped on the story. So what all happened here? I put this in your outline for you. Trusting God for his protection on a safe journey didn't mean no trouble, but God's help in trouble. It meant God's help in trouble. A lot of times, we want God to deliver us. And what we mean by that is, I don't want any trouble. I don't want any trouble at all. I want to just go on down the road. And if anything happens, I don't even want to know about it. That's what we consider to be, that's what many of us would consider to be delivered. Delivered. I still remember the, the way that R.W. Schambach would sign off on his radio program. Anybody ever listened to his radio program? Remember how he signed off? He signs off with the words that I'm not sure if it was a angelic visitation or a vision that he had, but it, something came to him and, and spoke this to him because he was in the midst of a troubling situation. And he was feeling overwhelmed by the situation. And he was told, you don't have any trouble. All you need is faith in God. Now, I don't remember all the things he said about that when that occurred, but I can imagine. What do you mean I don't have any trouble? Look at what I'm in right now. This is trouble. We got trouble. God says, you don't have any trouble. All you need is faith in God. Sometimes we have to remember that we don't have any trouble. All we need is faith in God. He said he signed off with that because I think he needed to remind himself that as much as uh, anything else. But he was also letting us know. That was a word that helped him out. It was a word that could help us out as, as well. But it says, And the hand of our God was upon us, and he delivered, past tense, delivered us from the hand of the enemy and from ambush along the road. Now, I have a hard time reading this in such a way that we didn't have the hand of the enemy come upon us because he delivered us from it. And we didn't have any ambush along the road because he delivered it from us. I'm seeing it that he delivered us from those particular things. We were delivered from it. Which means, to me, they were in it. That the enemy came upon them. That ambushments came upon them. Now, if that's the case, and you had this time of prayer and fasting, and you knew there was potential to encounter enemy and to encounter ambushments. You knew that was the potential. That's why you spent three days to seek after the Lord. You felt like you had the word from God. You felt like you had the direction that God said to go. Maybe it was the uh, path that they took. Maybe it was uh, the angels going along before them. We don't know what it was that they got as an answer because he doesn't write down the answer. He doesn't write down what came to them after those days of fasting. 
He just says that we, we went. I would imagine since they were waiting the three days spending time in fasting that they were waiting for something that they got it and that's why they left. Can you imagine what some Christians would go through if you were making that trip after spending that time seeking after the Lord and the Lord gave you some kind of an answer and you followed after the answer that He gave you and then ambushments came. What's this happening? I thought the Lord was going to deliver us from these things. How is the enemy coming against us here? I thought the Lord was going to deliver us from these things. Now they've already talked up a big God. They have probably gone over all those things we mentioned at the Red Sea, wiping out the Egyptian army, wiping out the other armies in the wilderness that came against them, feeding them from heaven, the quail that came, the water from the rock, all the different things that he did in the wilderness to preserve them and to help them. They heard all these things. They believed all these things. But now this is coming. Oh, what is this? We didn't sign up for this. So all that we are told is that. And then we go right over to 32. So we came to Jerusalem and stayed there three days. <laughs> That's it. I mean, for a guy who wants to write the historical account, why not write some of the historical account of what you faced? Why do we have to wait to heaven, get to heaven to hear the, the account? So we came to Jerusalem and stayed there three days. I wondered, did they stay there just three days? This is before they did anything. I said on the fourth day, that's when they set out to weigh the gold in the articles and we had to wait when we left. Here's the wait when we arrive. Three days, maybe they just spent time just rejoicing, praising God for the things that had gone on. We don't know what happened during those three days, but I imagine there was a sense of relief when they entered into Jerusalem. They entered into the country. Here they were. There's probably some uh, people who were excited to see their arrival and all the things they were bringing with them. Verse 33, now on the fourth day, the silver and the gold and the articles were weighed in the house of our God by the hand of Merimoth, the son of Uriah, the priest. And with him was Eleazar, the son of Phinehas. And with them were the Levites, Jozabad, the son of Jeshua, and Noadiah, the son of Benu, with the number and weight of everything. All the weight was written down at that time. Now they're big on, on writing things down according to Babylonian tradition, which may have still been carried on here, even though we're into the Persian Empire. Almost every transaction included a sales, uh, included a sales receipt, uh, an invoice. Marriages were all recorded. Everything had to be recorded in writing. And that may have carried on from the Babylonian time into the Persian time. And Ezra may have been required to send back a signed certification of the delivery of the treasures. I don't know. He doesn't mention it. But he does mention that everything was weighed. And everything was written down. Now it seemed to me that more than likely there was an account given back over to the king. There were people on the side of Jerusalem probably who signed these things. And so they didn't just have the people who were in the group. But there was other people on the other side saying, yes, we received all this. There it was measured out. So everything was 
was recorded. One thing of note that I didn't make mention of here in the beginning, that most of the families that Ezra mentions here that came along on this trip are also the same families that sent people on the first trip. There are other families that are probably involved in, in Israel, but it seems that certain families were more interested in going back to Jerusalem than others. So maybe certain families were more into promoting the things of the Word of God, promoting the things of what happened in Israel, promoting the things of what happened in the wilderness, promoting those things that happened in Egypt. That may have been some of the case. The children of those who had been carried away captive, who had come from the captivity, offered burnt offerings to the God of Israel, 12 bulls for all Israel, 96 rams, 77 lambs, 12 male goats as a sin offering. All this was a burnt offering to the Lord, and they delivered the king's orders to the king's satraps and the governors in the region beyond the river. So they gave support to the people and the house of God. So Ezra came to give support to the people. That was his purpose in coming. And to the house of God, we will see in the chapters to come that there was also some correcting of problems, some uh, discipline from sin that they had fallen into that was needed. And Ezra will be instrumental in helping them come out of those things. We pick that up in the, the chapter that is to come. But big talk is not faith talk Unless it has also, unless it also comes with faith actions. I think in your outline I had has there. It was supposed to be the word also. It didn't get changed back or something. But big talk is not faith talk unless it also comes with faith actions. How many of you know people that talk a big talk of faith, but then when it comes down to the, them being tested, they're nowhere to be found. They back down. They don't stand up to it anymore. If you're going to talk big, then you got to live up to it. And we got to be expecting this. If we are going to talk about a big God, then we got to know that people are going to be watching us when we hit something. When people in the news media are talking about collapse, economic collapse, and trying to get people in fear and worry. If we serve a big God, why are we in fear and worry? Listen to what God tells you to do. It's not that economic class... Uh, uh, crashing won't ever be near you but we've seen it happen in the word of God he gave warning to his people get ready this is coming and so they got ready if God hits you get ready for this well then you get ready and then when it comes we don't get all upset we've seen people get all upset over different sickness and diseases that have come across and over the decades we've seen many that had come across. And of course, they like to give them really cool names. It used to be swine flu and bird flu. And, and they would call it after uh, where it came from, you know, the Spanish flu. And then there's the Chinese flu. And then uh, whatever other ones they, they, I don't even know all the different flus they have. And then they just started putting numbers on them, H1N1. I don't know how we went from names to ones to, to letters and numbers. But then we got H1N1 that was out there for a little bit. And then we just go, went with abbreviations. We went on to that, and we had uh, SARS. I remember SARS. That was one. Then we had MERS. And so uh, MERS came along. And, of course, this last one, COVID, is actually, I don't know, I, I probably explained this one to you before, 
but COVID is actually SARS-2. It's, all, it's, it's the exact same thing, same kind of a line as uh, SARS-1 was. And actually, it follows a lot of the same characteristics of that as far as its contagious rate and, and so forth. It was very close to that. MERS is actually more contagious. It was about twice as contagious as the SARS virus was. Um, but we, we have all these different names and numbers. I don't know where they come up with the, with the names or why they switch to the, to the letters. They haven't. Down the road, they may come up with something else. But uh, if we serve a big God, don't fall in line with the world and the, the panic that they want to have. If they want to be panicked about it, well, let them go. But we talk a big God. We talk a God who's over sickness and disease. We talk a, about a God who's, over about their, uh, who's about to deliver us from things. We talk about the Psalm 91. People want to go out there and they want to confess Psalm 91. They want to speak that over. And then they get right into the midst of things and then they're fleeing. If you're going to talk a big talk, then you need to have a big walk. You need to be ready to go. And God is not wanting you to have a big talk just to have a big talk. He wants you to have a big walk. Put in your outline, our trust in God should be for deliverance in trouble, not for no trouble. A lot of Christians want deliverance from any trouble. But God wants to deliver you in trouble. That's what He's shown us in His Word. Over and over and over again, He shows us this in His Word. To expect anything different could end up with your faith being shipwrecked. Make sure that your beliefs, that your speaking is in line with the Word of God. Get it in line with the Word. I'll give you some examples of people who expected deliverance when in trouble. They were in trouble, but in trouble they expected deliverance. We can start off with Joseph. How many times did Joseph get in trouble? He's in the pit. He's in trouble as a, uh, the servant in Potiphar's house. He's in the prison. He's believing that in trouble, God will deliver him. David. He was in trouble with Saul. Saul's pursuing him. Saul's chasing him around. He was in trouble. He put himself in trouble with Goliath. He wasn't in any trouble where he was, but he put himself in the line of fire. He put himself in trouble knowing that his God would deliver him in trouble. When Saul sent him out to battle, he went out to battle. He was in the front. He was taking on the enemy and he became known. He became feared. But he constantly put himself in a place to be in trouble knowing that his God would deliver him. And he did that as he was king as well. Elijah. This man just will plop himself right on down there in trouble. Tell you what, you go all get all the prophets of Baal, all the prophets of Asherah, and just be me. Me against all you. That's putting yourself in the midst of trouble. Elisha would say things and do things that would be a part of a big God, but then people came after him. He's just fine. Whole army surrounds the city. He's calm. He's okay. He's in trouble, but he knows that in trouble, God will deliver him. Hezekiah found himself in a heap of trouble. He was surrounded by the king of Syria and their army. And they were making all kinds of threats against God. 
And Hezekiah knew, he told the people, God will deliver us from the trouble. Daniel knew he was going to get in trouble if he continued to pray. But he didn't stop. He went right out there and he prayed. He put himself in trouble because he knew that God would deliver him if he did what God said to do. God would deliver him in trouble. He talked about a big God. He served a big God. And he lived like he had a big God. Even his buddies, when they were faced with the decision, bow or die. Oh, we're not gonna, we're not gonna bow. They put themselves in a troubled situation and even declared, our God will deliver us from your fiery furnace, O King. <laughs> Jesus constantly put himself in trouble, knowing that God would deliver him because it was not yet his time to die. One time just walked right through the whole midst of the crowds trying to push him over the cliff. Paul, how many times is he in trouble? And he even declares, my God will deliver me. I put this one on here at the end. Even Samson, for as carnal as he was, Samson knew his God would deliver him when he was in trouble. And so he put himself in the midst of trouble. And let the anointing of God come on him and he'd start killing Philistines. He did not expect to be delivered from trouble. He expected to be delivered in trouble. That's where we need to be. Now there was also examples of people who expected deliverance from trouble. That didn't go so well for them. Abraham in the beginning when he first arrived at the promised land, what did he have? He had trouble. He had trouble and he decided to leave. This is not what I signed up for. I thought I wouldn't run into this sort of thing. He ran into trouble. And then, of course, he ran into trouble with Pharaoh and ran into some other troubles as well. But he eventually got it together, so much so that he put himself in trouble and went after five kings because they took Lot. Israel was in the wilderness. They kind of expected that God would deliver them from trouble. And so when the Egyptians came up behind them, when they were trapped at the Red Sea, they cried out to God. Why did you do this to us? When they ran out of water, they cried out to God. Why did you do this to us? Why did you bring us out here to kill us? When they ran out of food, why did you do this to us? They were expecting God to deliver them from trouble. Gideon, in the beginning, he seems to expect that God would not have allowed the trouble that the Midianites were putting on them. Why hasn't God delivered us from the trouble? Why are the Midianites troubling us? Why are they doing these things to us? Seems to be the expectation there. It's probably not only on him. An expectation that God would have delivered them from trouble. Saul, when he first encountered trouble, on the seventh day waiting for Samuel to come and to make the sacrifice, decided that waiting is not good. Nope, we're coming into more trouble. I don't have many men and they're all leaving. And Samuel's not getting here. So he went ahead and made the sacrifice. He got into trouble. He thought God would deliver him from trouble. And it didn't happen the way that he was expecting. No, you just let that go on. If everybody wants to leave you, you let everybody leave you. God will still deliver you. King Jehoram, the son of Ahab. He's walking around there on the, on the wall. And two ladies came up to him. Remember the story? Hey, uh, we ate 
her baby yesterday, or ate my baby yesterday, and today we were supposed to eat her baby, but she went and hit him. And the king was so mad, he said, if Elisha stays alive until tomorrow, and he pronounced all kinds of curses and so forth, so he's going to kill him, so he sent a messenger, and before he even got there, Elisha got the word, the messenger's coming. And that's a that's a wonderful story. If you want to go check that one out again, Second Kings chapter six and Second Kings chapter seven, we'll have that for you. But the um, the trouble that they were in was because of their own doing. But still, God came along to help them. John Mark, he left to go along with Paul and Barnabas, but they had trouble. And I guess John Mark was not thinking they would have this kind of trouble, so he left, went back home. Paul and Barnabas didn't leave. And they continued to face trouble. But they continued to to go on. Well, if we talk big, like we will have no trouble. We're not bragging on our on who our God is. If I talk big and I say I'm not going to have any trouble, things are just going to go smoothly. We are not bragging on who our God is. But we are demonstrating how ignorant we are of His ways. That is not something that God can back up. There is nowhere in the Word of God where God ever said, I will de- deliver you from having any trouble. But there is a promise that no matter what trouble comes upon you, I am bigger than your trouble. People who do this and then try and walk it out will come into hardship and often shipwreck. They will shipwreck their faith because they have spoken a thing that will not be done. And then they feel, if I'm going to remain a person of faith, I need to go and carry this thing out. And that is not the, that is not the way it should go. But those who know who God is, and what He says He will do, they know His Word, they know His ways, and they speak about the greatness of their God, they will be backed up. When we know our God, when we know how He operates, When we know the things that He does and we feed on those things, we meditate on those things, we seek after God for the way in which things are to be done. We don't just try and come up with our own plan. God, how is it that you want me to attack this problem? What is it that you want me to do when we go out here? And then He tells us the way, just like He did here with Ezra. Ezra, here's the way you should go. Here is what you should do. Here is how you should go about it. And they follow what God said. Then they encountered ambushments. Then they encountered the hand of the enemy. They were so unimpressed with what the enemy threw at them compared to the God that they served, he didn't even write it down. You ever watch those action movies? And then the star action movie? Uh, You know, Tom Cruise is in a lot of those action movies. And he goes through a whole difficult thing to try and keep a promise to somebody or to do a thing that he said he was going to do and he's sliding under cars and jumping in the air and jumping out of planes and all the different things that he does and when he finally gets to his destination people may ask him do you have any trouble? No. Why? Because nothing was more than he was ready to take on. When we get to the place where there is nothing that is more and we are ready to take on. I think we'll write this book the same way that Ezra did. And say, yep, we left. Uh, yeah, yeah, the enemy came against us. Uh, and then we arrived. <laughs> Just unimpressed 
and not, not even seeing the need to describe all the wonderful stories of what God had done. Just, uh, yeah, we arrived, rested for three days. Then we counted the stuff. Everything was there. And uh, we sent the notes on back. Just as uneventful, it would seem, as is going on. It is not wrong to talk big about your God. But it is wrong to talk big about your God when you don't know who He is. When you don't know what He will actually do. And then, it is wrong if you don't live like the God that you speak about. Make sure you know who your God is, what He has delivered you from, how He will go about keeping His word, and then when the enemy comes, don't be surprised. You are ready, and you can fight Him. Paul gave us the armor of God because he knew there would be things that would come against us. But when we have that armor going, we can make our stand, and we won't have to be moved. Ezra wasn't moved. It's a conversation I do look forward to in heaven, having with Ezra. Ezra, what went on on that trip? I'd love to know. But he does not record it here. It just didn't matter, it seems, that much to him. Do you talk big about your God? Are you ready to live big? Brother Hagin used to always tell us, he said, I haven't had a headache in 50 years. The time we were going to school was 50 years. I'm sure beyond that it was, he was telling some other numbers, but I'm just, that's what it was down there. Haven't had sickness in 50 years. Then he would clarify it and he'd say, I'm not telling you I didn't have the opportunity. I'm telling you I didn't take it. And so when things came upon him, he rebuked it and went on. Understand there will be tests that will come. Don't be surprised when tests come your way. They will come. But you serve a big God. If you're going to talk a big God, people are going to notice. When David went around in the army and talked about his big God, he got noticed. And he was brought before the king. Hey, we got this guy over here who's talking about serving a big God. Bring him on in. And he was so convincing that the king decided to let this boy go out and fight this battle. He was talking about a big God, but he lived the big God life. Are you ready to live the big God life? Are you ready to live like you serve a big God? Well, Father, we thank you that we do serve a big God. It is wonderful to be in your group, in your family. We're always learning about how big you are. We should never be afraid to speak about that, talk about that. But as we serve a big God, the enemy will show up and try and test that. There are many Christians who back down. But Father, you want those who will stand up, believe your word, and trust you, and be like Ezra. Well, I've talked about a big God. I can't go back and say I need armies, people now. And he made the trip. I wonder what kind of impact that had on King Artaxerxes. Especially when he got the notes back, it said that everything that was sent arrived in Jerusalem. Oh, that must have been a testimony to him. No army. 
No soldiers. No guards. Just their God. Let us be a testimony to the world that is around us of how big our God is and that we live in this world not with the confidence of the things that men supplies but with the knowledge of what our God has supplied. I thank you for it in Jesus' name. Amen.